Welcome to the Sajcast. I'm Mark Austin, and I'm Stacy Roberts, and we are the Sons of Joy. You're listening to Sajcast 18, our 18th ever Sajcast, a Sajcast that's old enough to vote or serve in the armed forces, which we doubt this Sajcast will ever do. Yes, I think it's going to be what 4F is that what we call it? <laughs> Disqualified for eyesight, weak knees. Fallen Arches and all the other things that got you out of a war that wasn't happening. The Flat-Footed Podcast. Oh, Lord. A new name. <laughs> Excellent. Today's podcast is sponsored by Careful Planning Gone Wrong. Makers of Measure Twice, Cut Once, Then Cut Again, Then Sand the Corners. No parts left over, except these two screws. And talking really fast because you forgot to pee before starting your podcast. So Sajcast 18 is going to be the last Sajcast of this year. Yes, 2012. We planned it that way. That's because the world will end in a week. (laughs) Oh, yes. So listen now, people. (laughs) Yes. Get your podcasting all done before the world... What what happens? The Mayans, did they explain what was going to happen to the world? Yes. Hun Piktok, the uh, god of creation and of war, whose name means 8,000 stone knives... Will come into the uh, come down to the world and destroy it to make room for the fifth uh, the fifth iteration of the universe the fifth uh, the fifth world essentially. So we're living in the fourth world now. It's kind of like the Matrix. Oh, well, when you put it like that, it doesn't even sound scary. It's like yes. oh, you eight thousand stone knives, and eh, we're waiting for you. You've got an unpronounceable name. Welcome to Earth. Come down here. And uh, there's there's many people interpret that as the end of the world, but others interpret it as uh, we'll enter a phase of enlightenment. And honestly, I think a world destruction is far more likely. <laughs> yes, we've tried enlightenment. It doesn't seem like it uh, it took all that much. So, yeah, people who people who sponsor enlightenment often um, they end up badly. Yes, <laughs> they did indeed. So anyway, uh, the last uh, Sajcast of the year, we're going to uh, to talk about some some times when careful planning goes wrong, and we have an interview. That's right. It's a very exciting interview with Charity Parkerson. She's an award-winning author of many, many books, and we thought more we... books than we have podcasts. That's right. At least at the time we're recording this. Someday we hope to Someday. surpass her because ours only take an hour. Well, because you know her her hand might cramp up, she might get tired of writing, she might take a vacation. All these things might encourage us to pull ahead. So we thought we would end the year of Sajcasting casting with a bang and interview Charity Barkers. We had intended to interview Charity um, earlier this week. And we set up the well, interview. Yeah, I was saying, more than intended, we we took our mobile Sajcasting lab to uh, to a place because this was not during our normal Sajcasting hours, so we had to find someplace especially quiet. And we set up all the equipment, and we had Skype ready, and we had microphones standing by, and headphones, and we were all gathered around the Skype, waiting for some word from Charity. And we were supposed to start at what nine o'clock? Nine o'clock nine was o'clock. the agreed upon time. The plan, as it were, was for nine o'clock. And at 9.05, it occurred to us to wonder if maybe Charity was in a different time zone. Well, we figured she was late or something went wrong. Well, I... Some careful planning had gone wrong. Well, but in the guidelines of the Sajcast, we assume that the people we're interviewing are perfect. And if there's a flaw, it must be on us. And so we did some hasty looking of things up, and we determined that, yes, indeed, she was in Central Time. And so we had to reschedule the interview, but fortunately for everyone listening... We have it. It's in the can. Before we uh, before we jump ahead to our interview with Charity, 
um, I thought we might talk about some, uh, well, another interview that we very nearly had that we're it's probably going to have to wait for 2013 if Hun Tokpik does not destroy the world. Yes, exactly. This is, as we might say, this is the interview that will happen if the world doesn't end. And so if unpronounceable Mayan god comes to Earth with his 8,000 stone knives, we want to hear a collective sigh from humanity that says, oh, now we won't get to hear the interview with Whackburger Guy. Whackburger Guy. Um, Whackburger Guy is the guy who owns Whackburger, which was referenced in an earlier Sodgecast. Many, many earlier, several of them, actually. Yes, and I won't tell you which one, because you have to go back and listen to them all, and during our hiatus, which may be permanent if unpronounceable Mayan <laughs> God has his way. I don't think that counts as a hiatus if the world is destroyed. If we achieve enlightenment, we'll be back. Or oh, we'll be replaced it's... with enlightened podcast hosts. I'd say, that'll be a very excellent show, then. <laughs> it would be, yes. And so... Um, anyway, talk if, about one take wonders. Yes, or is it one TikTok wonders? What's the name of the Mayan god? Hun Piktok. Hun Piktok. So one one TikTok wonders. There'll be a link on the website to his lordship, the Mayan unpronounceable god, the god of war and creation. And eight thousand stone knives. You'd think he'd upgrade his equipment. Oh, that's the beauty of it. it it's got that retro flair. Yeah, we've got no defense against stone knives. <laughs> so anyway. Whackburger guy. Whackburger guy. We wanted to interview him because it is food porn live. This is a guy who conceived of and creates food, and we go and buy it and then eat it. And so we wanted to interview him and ask him what all that was about and have an expanded food porn section. Well, in, 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 a, in a modality that we've never done before, which is to say the Whackburger is very, very close by here. We essentially said, hey, dude, you could just walk, you know, walk down the street, come with us for 15 minutes and interview us. But he's just, he really is making Whackburgers all the time. He can't break away. Right. But anyway, we wanted to get him in the room with us. And right. the first ever Sajcasting interview dynamic. At Studio Z. At Studio Z. And if we were to plan carefully, we would say, you know, while we're thinking of it, Whackburger guy, you should probably bring samples of Whackburgers <laughs> over for the interview process so that All we can eat varieties. So that we can speak of these things with authority as if we know. We can say, well, you know, my favorite Whackburger is the Apple Brie Whackburger, and it's here it is, right here on the table. Uh, but that might be perceived to be self-serving. Also, if we're such careful planners that we're going to have Whackburger guy bring over a bunch of burgers, maybe before then we should find out what his real name is. Uh, who's to say we haven't? I mean, come on, we've been in email communication with them. <laughs> well, we just like clever nicknames. Well, that's true, too. I mean, I guess it is also possible that in our capacity as broadcasters of of thought, we could name things and just have that stick. And now he will be Whackburger Guy. He the, is to many of the locals anyway. <laughs> that's right. So from the point of the interview forward, he will be Whackburger Guy. But something for you all to look forward to, if the world does not end... For next year. Yeah, so to tie this into careful planning gone wrong, we actually opened up communications with the Whackburger guy several weeks ago and well in advance of uh, Sajcast 17. And, and that was the one we actually sort of envisioned that he would be in, but careful planning gone wrong is uh, is where we are. So. Well, no, because here's how it happened. We, we said, all right, we're going to craft an email to him that explains what a Sajcast is. Well, we, I mean, we went over and talked to the dude in person. Yeah, we went, we talked to him in person. We, we bought some Whackburgers. We did. As kind of a peace offering. And then we came back to the studio and we, came, we crafted an email to him that explained the process and what, what we were going to ask him. You know, what, the things we like to do for the people that we interview so they have some idea of what's coming up. The standard email, yes. And uh, we put it in drafts and there it languished until one day we said, 
did you send that email to Weisberger guy? Oops. <laughs> yes. And so, he didn't get the email timely enough. But we checked with him today, and he did, in fact, get the email. He did. We sent it late, but he, he did get it, and he just has been too busy. And so, with this being the last Hodgecast of the year, we figure this is something that you guys can look forward to if the world isn't destroyed. Should we be saying the last Sajcast for all eternity, or is that pessimistic? That might be pessimistic. Okay. But we can say that about every Sajcast. See you next week if the world isn't destroyed. That could be our new sign-off. Since we're we're lacking a, a clever sign-off. I no, see, the problem is, is that because we have children, uh, if they ever do listen to the Sajcast, sooner or later they're going to go, Hey, what do you know that we don't know? <laughs> um, it's like um, I've been listening to the history of Rome on, on my iPhone as I go on the treadmill, one of the last good emperors of Rome, Marcus Aurelius, wrote down, you know, comfortable sayings, things that an emperor should keep close. And one of them is always, just remember every night when you tell your child goodnight that they could very well be dead in the morning. It's pessimistic, even for an emperor of Rome. It is. So, we will not, we will not sign off our Sajcast uh, by saying that if the world doesn't end, we'll catch you next time. But I think that's the ultimate, um, it's the ultimate vow on our part. Barring the end of the earth, we'll be back. <laughs> okay, well, that's, a, that's an interesting. It's way. something. Yeah, that puts it in a whole new light. <laughs> well, it occurred to me that in our tradition of saying people's names and then having them appear, uh, in, in which has happened in a number of Sajcasts, uh, we've said Hun Piktok's name, and now, I'm starting to wonder if that was a bad idea. If he does, in fact, show up, it might not be good for the world come the 21st. It also would not be good for anyone to blame the end of the world on our Sajcast. Oh, that's one way to get famous. It's the last way to get famous. Yeah, not for long, mind you, but... The last thing that happened before the world end was that everybody knew who we were. We get to be the last Sajcast, you know, the last podcast ever. Ever. <laughs> and we mean it. So... Anyway, careful planning gone wrong. So it occurred to us in pre-production that there are examples, as it were, of careful planning gone awry. It seems like this is a perfect occasion to talk about them. And Christmas is a perfect time for careful planning to go wrong because... We're all carefully planning our Christmases. One would hope. Hanukkahs, which no. are underway. <laughs> Christmases. Um... Because there's there's gifts that you have to buy, and and ever since I had people to buy gifts for, meaning most notably my children, it's been a struggle to find out what they want and find out if it's attainable in this hemisphere, and then go and get it. I was to say the latter was a my my problem, not the not the the first part. Well, finding out what they wanted was always easy. Whether whether or not you could get you know a pony that had gilded furs, <laughs> that's tougher. Right? Well, the problem is that now, I mean, the good news is is that our children are. For the most part, pretty responsible. They they try and live within their means. They're not extravagant, and my children haven't yet asked me for anything. No, which I got to say does not help my plan to go get them gifts because time is running out. True. So um, at the moment, I can tell you that my Christmas planning thus far, I'm planning all kinds of things, but nothing has materialized because everyone I know is hard to shop for. Well, and, and in the careful planning department, we were carefully planning um, our events for Friday, because Friday is the release of The Hobbit. Oh, yeah. And that was more careful planning going on. That's right. Because we thought, being captains of industry, that we could declare 
Friday afternoon as a we're-not-going-to-be-at-work sort of occasion. Yeah, it's one of those traditions that only comes around when The Hobbit gets released, which is like once. <laughs> right. Which kind of... But it's a take the day off and go to the movies kind of day. Right. And um, as it turned out, I will not be able to do that because all the people that work for me have been sent off on appointments that they can't get out of, and someone has to man the store, even if the world's going to end. So, I will not be going to the Hobbit movie, and I will be very disappointed. Well, you will go, just not on Friday afternoon. You could go later. Uh, I can't take the movies later. Opening night, especially. It's going to be full of people with bad Hobbit feet and horrible Hobbit accents and wigs that are awful and goofy ears. We do not want any part of that. People, by the way, who you might say plan very carefully Oh yes, to show up at the Hobbit movie looking like Hobbits. Proud feet? Yes. <laughs> uh, anyway. Anyway, so the other thing that cropped up in pre-production was a story from my, well, I guess you'd call it my recent past, but... It was probably six or seven years ago. Um, my youngest daughter, Erin, befriended another child, and I'm sure she had a name. I can't remember it now. But they were good buddies for a while. And, um, and just to set the scene, when I decided to have children, like I decided to have children, but in my long-term plan to have children, part of it was, you know, move them to a, a decent neighborhood, a good school district, all the things that you look for um, when you have children. And so I wanted to live in a neighborhood where I didn't have to lock my doors, where I didn't have to worry about crime or anything like that. And so I moved into one of these suburbs. And, you know, you meet people and, and your kids become friends and, and your kids at their house and their kids at your house. And you kind of just assume that all is well. Yeah, this is a suburb I lived in for a brief spell. And yeah, I mean, just the fact that you're in the suburb to the other people in the suburb is it's good enough. Right. That's but, your credential. Yes. Oh, you live here? That's good. Right. Except, it can be turned on its ear by somebody who is less than scrupulous. Oh, yes. And as it turned out that the mother of this friend of, of uh, my daughter's was not beset with scruples. On the occasion of Aaron's birthday, Aaron asked to uh, have us get a room at a local hotel that was, you know, it's kind of one of these theme hotels where one of the rooms is like a cave or the other one is like a, a tiki hut. And... You know, it's, it's, uh, they've got a huge recreational area. And so the mother of the friend was going to go and my ex-wife was going to go. And so all they wanted from me was to put my credit card down to reserve the room. And so I did. And I, at the time, I remember telling them this is one night, you know, I signed, I had to, I had to actually come in and sign the credit card slip for the one night and it had a total on it and, and all of that about Two weeks later, when my credit card statement rolled in, there was there were charges on that card for something like nine hundred dollars, and that I knew seems, that seems like a lot for one night in a hotel. It did seem like a lot for one night, and so I checked with Aaron, who at the time was six years old. Aaron, <laughs> do you remember staying in that hotel for I don't know a week or two? Are you still staying there? <laughs> yes. And of course, she had no idea what I was talking about, as she often did not. And uh, as it turned out, this woman, this uh, parent of the friend of Aaron. Um, not only stayed a couple extra days herself, but she had her whole family come down and got them rooms as well. And it all got charged on my credit card. And so I spoke to the manager of the hotel. Now this woman was no relation to you. No relation just, to me at all. Just a friend of right. your, your daughter's. Right. And my ex-wife was there, you know, for the, for the one night that they were there. And then she went home and Aaron went home and these people just stayed. And, um, 
So I talked to the manager when I got the chart. Well, first thing I did was I talked to our my, my, my good friends at MasterCard and said, all these charges are denied. <laughs> and they promptly canceled them. And then I called the manager just to tell him that all these charges were going to be denied because I signed up for one night and his hotel clerk took my credit card for a ride and I wasn't going to pay the charges. And what was astounding to me was that then this hotel manager started to tell me why this was okay. And you run through all the scenarios. So if I was getting married and I was inviting out-of-town guests and I secured a block of rooms for them for the day of the wedding and the day after, and they decided to invite 20 or 30 other people and get them rooms, you're saying that that would all go on my credit card. And he said, yes, because when you put down your credit card at a hotel, you're authorizing us to charge to charge it. Yes. For anyone in the world that might come along that decides that's, to charge it. That's what it seemed to me. And this was patently ridiculous because there is no circumstance where I can imagine this being okay. And I actually, our friend Rob was a hotel manager or assistant manager for a while. Yes. And he did really, he really backed me up on that. He said, yeah, that's no way. But, but this manager really stuck to his guns. And this is not a national chain. This is a single hotel in our area. Uh, but he really stuck to his guns to the point where his attorney sent me a letter. Yeah, he was taking, I think what he was doing was taking the, your, your guest emptied the minibar logic to some absurd conclusion. That's right. And, and so it finally came down to, I said, well, then I think my only option is I'm going to have to charge whoever, you know, I'm going to have to file criminal charges against your hotel staff for identity theft and credit card fraud. So I'm going to go do that now with the county attorney. And next week, we're all going to be on the news. Because once the the uh, ingoing public, as it were, figures out that their credit card and identities can't be trusted in the hands of your hotel staff, your hotel is going to be empty, except for people who are from out of town. And I don't think you can make a living that way. And we are talking 900 bucks, and we're talking about the fact that your people screwed up because they should have gotten a signature. So yeah, I gave, exactly. I mean, you, yeah. you said, show me the signature. And That's I said, true. here it is, and it didn't look... Anything like your signature. That's right. I did not sign it. Because I remember that they, my ex-wife had to call me from the hotel desk to say, they want you to come down here and sign this. Which I was not inclined to do, but I, I came down and did. And so it, it really didn't make sense to me that on day one I had to come in person to sign. But for the next three days, I didn't have to sign anything. It's very weird. And so um, it's like these, you know, if you've ever gotten a, a letter in the mail from a debt collector for the cell phone that you bought back in 1996, and they say, you owe us $436 because you didn't fulfill your contract. The answer is always, show me my name, show me right. my signature on a contract, and I will pay your bill. And somehow, they just never can. Yeah. <laughs> Pull the paperwork. Right. Well, because we actually work at a debt collector. We did. But that's a story for another podcast. It is indeed. My careful planning of living somewhere safe and being able to trust my neighbors uh, didn't work out so well because, as it turned out, this was, I, I must have caught this woman in the middle of her crime spree, because within two weeks of the hotel fiasco, she was in jail for uh, prescription fraud and other kinds of identity theft. In fact, she had stolen my ex-wife's checkbook and wrote some checks on her account, too. That's so. crazy. So now, now you can tell the hotel manager, so the woman that you're defending, should she ever be released? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is the person that you want to stand shoulder to shoulder with and say, these charges were... At the press conference. We'll make sure she's wearing stripes. I heard they're slimming. Yes. So for all my careful planning, uh, I have learned that uh, you can't just just give your credit card to a hotel clerk and think things will go well. 
Yes. And that, in no way, reminds me of my favorite careful planning story from my childhood, which is going to be on my blog, trailertrashforthegirlsname.blogspot.com. We'll have a link. But it is the story of the time that my stepfather, Ted the drug dealer, heard that there were marijuana fields in Kentucky, of all places, that had been confiscated by the police. And uh, he wasn't really clear on what the purpose was. Now, but they were still there. They were still there. And and um, and at the time, he had a council of advisors. This was these were people that he was supplying. Drugs. This is in the late eighties. Late eighties. So, right? I mean, this isn't something I posted on Facebook or anything like that. Right. Some sort of criminal rumor net. Yes. No. This was this was just um, he he hung out with uh, people that he was getting drugs for. There was Tiny, the heroin addict, who weighed five hundred pounds. Uh, there was a very slick kind of accountant or no, a real estate guy who was taking his clients' uh, deposits and down payments and escrow payments and uh, sending them up his nose, as it were. And then there was some college kid from the University of Miami who was just in the pot, and I think that's where this, this bit of intelligence came from. And so Ted, the drug dealer, set about uh, going to Kentucky, finding one of these marijuana fields, and harvesting, as it were. Now, again... I am having to repeat the story as it was repeated to me, uh, because he did come home uh, triumphant, triumphantly, uh, full, you know, Roman emperor has just defeated the goth tribes of the frozen north, and now I'm going to give myself a big parade. When he summoned his council of advisors, he was quite full of himself, and he was pretty proud of the story that he told, in which he went to Kentucky, harvested the marijuana, killed a guard dog with a machete. Now, when you say marijuana, you're not talking about a couple of bags. Oh, no, no. Four is measured in pounds, right? Four hundred pounds of marijuana. So was this a, a car or a van? He, he he drove up there in his cab. He was a cab driver. A taxi. Yes, and he had a station wagon cab, and he folded the seats down, and when he brought that thing home, there were garbage bags full of marijuana to the roof. I mean, I, I don't know how he... I mean, he, he had the luck of drunks, you know? Yeah, I mean... Not getting pulled over. Not getting anything. pulled over. I mean, but but... This is this was how it worked, and so he managed to get home with all this stuff, um, and and so what happened was he pulled into the driveway with four hundred pounds of recently cut marijuana, which, as it turns out, and I'm, well, here's how I know, uh, my stepfather was a drug dealer, but you can't sell it like that; <laughs> it has to be dried and like a, like a nice firewood. It needs a season of it. It needs a season. It needs to dry out, and so he had planned going to Kentucky, which. 1,200 miles, um, armed with the necessary implements to harvest marijuana, and notably his his dog-killing machete. Great foresight there. Yes. And getting all the way back. But then he didn't know what to do with the unprocessed marijuana. Um, his council and advisors told him, hey, man, you've got to dry that out before you sell it. And so the only way that he could think to do that, uh, well, <laughs> he started with the oven. It was almost a classic sitcom moment, because if you read my blog, you know that my mother can't cook. And so this was the first time in our memory that something went into that oven that made the rest of us hungry. <laughs> so that didn't work, because my mother didn't want the competition. So she had us take it out of the oven, and they hung it up through the house on clotheslines with clothespins. Someone should have told them that there were some barns in Kentucky used for this very purpose via tobacco. Right. <laughs> and you could have just... Confiscated one of those for a few weeks. Oh, sure. But, uh, again, careful planning got awry. Ted shows up with a, with a car full of, of raw marijuana and says, 
what are we going to do now? So they hung it up all through the house. So if you can imagine, it's a typical Florida home. You know, front door leads to kitchen, attached to dining room, which leads to family room. There were no real walls. So you could string clothesline, I don't know, two or three room lengths. Right. There was marijuana hanging almost throughout the entire house. I remember I had called you on the phone because you were supposed to come over that weekend for some reason, um, you know, to plan our podcast 25 years later, most likely. And my mother yeah, said... It may have been to plan our next move in Ultima. Yes. <laughs> that, or Zork. Zork. Yes. Um, or or <laughs> to plan ways to get the women that are like the women that we've ended up with now. <laughs> it took a long time, but here we are. It was worth the wait. Indeed. But, uh, so... While I'm on the phone with you, my mother says, oh, he can't come over. And I said, oh, you can't come over. And don't tell him why. Oh, I can't tell you why, but apparently it has something to do with all the marijuana hanging in the house. <laughs> I was in big trouble for that, apparently. So, uh, anyway, Ted uh, did not successfully dry all the marijuana and ended up selling all of it to his, his uh, advisor, the stoner, whose idea it was to begin with for about... $180, which didn't even cover his gas. I was going to say, even then, when gas was cheap, it was probably a It lot did of not cover his gas. So, I don't know what 400 pounds of marijuana goes for on the street, but I think that it's safe to say that Ted the drug dealer was a, was a really bad businessman. <laughs> <laughs> that's pre-drying weight. That's, well, that's pre-drying <laughs> weight. But even I knew that this was a raw deal. I was like, you've oh, got to yeah. be kidding me. You're letting this go for 200 bucks? Well, that's all Marty the stoner had on him. And I'm like, you know, I'm thinking that the real planner here might have been Marty. Indeed. Hey, Ted, you know what? There's marijuana fields in Kentucky. Oh, no, I can't go with you. <laughs> and you can't do anything with the marijuana? I'll take it off your hands because I'm such a great guy. So uh, I'm. Uh, the details are going to be on my blog, and there'll be a link on the website. And you can read about all the salient and illegal, even now, illegal details. In, even now. There might be a statute of limitations on all that, but the act itself, still illegal. Yes. Uh, 400 pounds, even illegal in Washington. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It's a tad bit over the legal limit. Yes. So, I guess with that, it's time to uh, saunder on over to the interview booth. Where Jeremy Parkerson, finally in the correct time zone, awaits. <laughs> uh, here we are. And as we mentioned on our podcast uh, earlier, we have now figured out what time it is, and so have gotten the proper <laughs> the proper time and place to interview Charity Parkinson, award-winning author. Hi, Charity. Hi, well, how are you? Uh, yes, welcome to the Sodcast. Um, we um, we're really quite happy to have you on the show. We've been angling to get you on here for quite a while, and um, since December is launch month for the Adonis. We uh, we thought it was a great opportunity uh, for us to do this. We'll get. <laughs> I warn you about my clock. <laughs> oh, all right. That's all right. Any <laughs> reminder, any reminder that we can have of what time it is is really helpful. <laughs> it's awful uh, when we record our show. It's just like it, my phone is going to ring. My house phone. Somebody might knock on the door. Uh, my clock is going to ding every 30 minutes, and usually my trash will run, so you can hear them banging my bins around outside. Well, we've got, at our um, at our recording studio, such as it is, 
we've got buses that stop out front and they talk and they, they say what line, what bus line it is and the destination. So all this stuff is in the background. So yeah, if once we get a hundred thousand listeners, we might soundproof a little better. <laughs> we're going to lobby the, we're going to lobby the city to move the route. Yeah. Move, move the buses for us. So, uh, okay, so the first question that we ask everybody we interview is, much like a, a superhero, what is your foundation myth? We want the story of, of um, you getting bitten by a radioactive spider, whatever it was, that got you where you are today. So, specifically, how did you start writing, and, and how did you settle on your, your genre of writing? My mother is an author, so I was raised in a very literary household. What we read was never censored, but what we watched on TV, you know, they were they were very serious about, you know, staying age appropriate, but they never censored what we read. And as a teenager, I began writing poetry, um, but it wasn't until I was married and I had children of my own and I was a stay-at-home mom that I really got back into writing again and found I had time for it. And I was keeping it to myself. Like, I would send it to my mom, or I would let my husband read it, but I wasn't really telling anybody about it. And my husband kept saying, why are you doing this? You know, and I'm like, it's just for me. And he was like, it, it's good. Why don't you try to get a publisher? And I was like, no, nobody wants to read this mess. And finally, <laughs> one day, I, I sent it off to a publisher, but I didn't tell anyone that I had done it. And I thought, this way, if I get rejected, you know, nobody will know but me. And uh, to my surprise, they accepted it. So my first two books went through a publisher, and, and I found I, I really wasn't happy going that route. So I went self-published in May of 2011, and my very first book that I self-published won an award. So from there, it just exploded. Yes, and and clearly uh, in this case it was it was good to be wrong in thinking no one wanted to read your books. So what was it about traditional or or you know I'm using finger quotes here traditional publishing didn't you like? The, in, if you're not already established, they don't usually push your work, you know, because you're not what you're not what's making the money. And of course they're all about making the money, and so they're. They tend to push the people who are already established, they're already making their money, and all the little tiny people, you have to do all the same amount of work that you would if you were indie, except you don't have any control. So even if you have the best plan for promotions that you can think of, there's no way for you to implement it because you can't control when a when it book goes on sale, when it goes off sale, can you do a free day? You know, there's you have no control. So it's, you just can't, it's really hard to work within the confines and make any money and get anywhere or anyone to notice you. Yeah, that makes sense. And so 21 books later, who's laughing now? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that, and that actually leads into, um, into the Adonis tour because, um, we were watching this, uh, your book tour when it came up on Facebook as an event and we were just uh, blown away at how how carefully planned it seemed to be, how you've got, you know, you've got a, a lot of scheduled events through the month of December. You've got contests and giveaways and, and quizzes. And uh, so um, talk a little bit about how you came up with the idea for the Adonis tour and, and how it's going. It's going really well. I don't know that it, it's really hard. Uh, one of these days I'm going to learn 
to do one thing at a time and see what works <laughs> <laughs> instead of doing a thousand things at one time and not knowing what it is that's actually helping. But I'm enjoying myself. I love to give my books away. You know, of course, I need to make money because this is my full-time job. But what I really wanted when I started out was readers. So I do love to be able to autograph a book and send it off to someone. But I'm a Goddess Fish tour host with um, Goddess Fish Promotions, which they work with Avon and Indy and, you know, pretty much whoever wants to hire them. And they do something called a, a book blast tour. And they will send out invites to their blog tours, tours like me that were, you know, they're like, will you take these people for a day and promote their book? And they'll send you a cover and the blurb and an excerpt. And that's all you do is just post it on your blog. And, of course, I'm part of Triber, so all of my blog posts just go out to, I think, 1.5 million people. And But it's really expensive. Okay. And I thought... I real I wanted to do it for a long time, but I just was like I don't know that if this works or not, and I don't really want to invest the money to find out. And then finally one day I was like, well, I know people with blogs, but I don't know just ask them if they're willing to do it. So I just kind of put the call out on my Facebook page and was like, this is what I want to do. Does anybody want to volunteer <laughs> to help out? And I was really surprised by how many people said, yeah, I want to be part of it, especially people who were just book reviewers and not other authors. Right, that's a good sign. It seemed like there was a pretty long list of people who wanted to get on board. Yeah, I think I ended up with 30. Nice, that is nice. So based on on the results that you're seeing, book sales and things like that, uh, and and, uh, the interest of of the community, it seems like it's working pretty well. I think it's going well. You know, December is a bad sales month all the way around, and it is every year because people are buying Christmas presents and they're saving their money and they're not really thinking about buying books until after Christmas hits and everybody's got their new Kindle and they want to feel books. So anything you can do to be seen in the month of December, just repetitively everybody seeing your name is a good thing because they're getting ready to get that new Kindle. And they got to put something on it. So here we are. That's right. (laughs) That might as well be me. Yes. Now, um, we saw this morning on Facebook that you had some big news that you've been um, sitting on for a while. Uh, So why don't you tell us about that? Sure. I I entered a contest back in September, an erotic contest. Um, I entered a short story called Black Ribbon Fantasy into Firefly and Wisp. I can't even say their name. Publishing company. And the prize for first place was a publishing contract. And I won. Excellent. So I signed my contract yesterday. Nice. And so um, what's the deal like? They You have to give them a, a number of books that they're going to publish, or is it just one? Well, they want to. The short story I entered, they want to publish. But they also have given me a deadline for two more short stories to because they want to make like a little you know, anthology book for me. Oh, okay. That sounds great. I'm kind of nervous about it. I, you know, I left traditional publishing, you know, sort of, you know, like flipping on the book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm nervous about getting back in, so I'm just dipping my toe in it. If I don't like it, then I can get out, you know. 
uh, I figure I have enough titles that I can sacrifice one to try it again. Yeah, I think it, I mean, well, and it's, I think every indie writer has to deal with what if, what if my indie success leads a traditional publisher to come and find me and, and wants me to, to go traditional after I've been self-published. And it's kind of a, it's the devil's dilemma that we, that we all face. And, and I, I'm thinking that because you've done it both ways now, with this new experience, um, I think you'll definitely have your wits about you and know what what you want, and and uh, I think it's uh, hopefully up to them to cooperate. I hope so. You know, I, I was talking to an, another indie author. I won't say his name just in case he doesn't want me to tell the conversation we had, but he's pretty well known. And I was told him, I was like, I don't know if I want to sign this contract or not. I'm not sure how I feel about it. And I've been indie a long time now, and I'm doing fine on my own, and it's hard to say I'm going to give you a percentage of my work, and I'm still going to do the same amount of work. And he was like, you know, times have changed so much that authors have truly realized that shopping for a publisher is like searching for a babysitter for your children. Like, you get to choose now whether or not you want that person to watch your work for you for a year, two years, five years, however long your contract is. You know, you have the choice now, and you get to choose them more so than they're choosing you. That's and a Yeah, that's, when, a, that's a big change. It is, and I think it's a, it's a good thing because it's been too many years that people who have really awesome talent have been turned away for no other reason than they are overwhelmed with people wanting to get published. Right. And then now that there's another way to do it, uh, we have options. You know, we can we can do it ourselves. And, and like you had said earlier about traditional publishing, if you have to do all of the promotion and sales yourself, then what really are they helping you do except maybe have your book on, in bookstores in Amsterdam or something? Uh, and you can do that yourself now too with with CreateSpace. You know. So it so, kind of levels the playing field. It does. And why accept eight percent when you can make seventy percent? Right. Okay. Um, so another question that we had, uh, we were delighted to hear that you have a podcast, um, and they're great fun to listen to. Uh, you're doing a podcast with Melissa Craig, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, it is uh, it's semi regular and. Um, often not rated PG, but uh, <laughs> go ahead and uh, talk about that. Tell us how that got started. Okay. A year ago, I won an award, and I was approached by Harold Leavitt from, from Page to Screen, and he asked if I would come on his show to be interviewed about the award, and I was really nervous because I had never, ever done a podcast before, but he was awesome, and I felt so comfortable by the time that we actually started recording. And he came back about a week later and said that my podcast was the highest rated show that they'd ever had. And did I know any other authors that they could interview? And I told him that, yeah, I knew Melissa Craig because we we had met on Goodreads and become really good friends. And so they said, well, we're having a a one-year anniversary show coming up. Would the two of you like to come on together and we will do a live show? We agreed and we came on it. Is that that show was even higher rated than the last one. And they were like, how would you like your own show? (laughs) (laughs) 
So we worked with from page to screen for a little while, and but since then we've gone out on our own, and we still love the whole from page to screen network. So, you know, they have several shows, and we love all of them. But it was really hard to have someone else editing the show when you know I live in the U.S. and she lives in Australia, and the person who is editing the show, Stuart Bannerman, lives in the U.K. So we all live in such vastly different time zones. It was becoming almost impossible to also then schedule somebody to be a, on a guest. And there was no telling where they live. They might live in Denmark. So, you know, and we would have Stuart on, you know, muted, running the show and recording it and editing. And then so we, all four of us were having to try to come together and find a time to record. For, and it was becoming so hard to do that me and Melissa were finding, like, when along with Stuart, we're like, this is just, we got to find a different way to do this. This is killing us all. So, yeah, it's just me and Melissa on our own. It sounds like you had the, the three most interesting English accents that were out there. You needed a South African maybe to, to round that out. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I felt just like the school country hit cousin. <laughs> like, I was just dying. And we could, one of our first guests that we had on several times was Mark Wright. And he's so hilarious that we that we had him coming on once a month. He's got that really sexy Scottish accent. Yeah. So I've got the Scottish and the Australian and the English, and I'm just like sighing and you know like accent heaven. Like, oh. <laughs> and then here I come in going, hey y'all, how are y'all doing today? <laughs> That's all right because from their perspective, they're going, wow, she's got a great accent. Yes. Um, yeah. I know. Okay. Melissa's like, you'll be beating men off at the airport here if you <laughs> come to Australia. Um, and and you've talked about the awards that you've received and um, we're going to list them on the website because it seems like there's too many to mention but the the one that sticks out is Mistress of the Dark Path which you've won more than once so tell us about that one I've won that one three times Uh, the Mistress of the Dark Path is um, she's a book reviewer she's one of Amazon's best She's an awesome lady. She's a huge supporter of any style of writing. She doesn't care if you're traditional, indie, it doesn't matter to her. And once a month, she holds a contest, a writing contest. And so long as you're meeting the requirements, like you have one in the past three months, and she sets down all of these restrictions for each month, and you have to follow the rules exactly, like it has to be a certain word count, and you have to use, like, the word green seven times or you know, different little fun rules every time, and then she breaks it down to the top three stories, and then she spins it out to vote. <clears throat> she has several famous people that, that vote on these things. I mean, I know that she's told me some names of some people that she can see, like, hitting her website, and or they've just left comments on it, and they come in and they vote, and the top one when first place, and I've somehow or another managed to pull that off three times. <laughs> yep, and it's just a, I think it's just a great title to be walking around with. You know, it's, uh, it's intimidating to other people, you know, like when you, <laughs> when you go to the Australian airport, you can say, get my bags, don't you know who I am? I am the mistress of the dark path, and <laughs> hopefully they'll just play along and do what you want. At, at every RenFest, they have a whole section dedicated to you. Just yeah. <laughs> I enjoy just saying that I've won the Mistress of the Dark Path three times. It just really makes me sound like I've, I've done something really dirty. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'm not saying that's why it got our attention, but it was. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so now we're at the, the part of our interview where 
we ask you questions that are really not related to anything. Uh, we just made them up because we like to ask weird questions, and so uh, we figured you'd be perfect for this. Um, and one of the ones that we had rejected but you had wanted us to put back in was the last text that you had received. <laughs> so tell us about that. Uh, my friend Amber, she's another erotica writer. Mm-hmm. Um, we had, me and my friend, um, our mutual friend Chris, we kind of plotted against her to send her a gift. And I had texted her to find out her address, and she got this gift in the mail. And I was like, I guess you know now that you're not going to be getting a Christmas card from me, which is why I told her I needed her address. And she texted me back, and this is um, a funny text, also autocorrect moment gone wrong. She said, uh, I don't know whether to kiss your twat or, or uh, throttle you. <laughs> and like half a minute later, okay, I was. It, what's funny is I didn't even question it. I was like, you know, that's just that's just Amber. But half a minute later, I could the text text is like, fuck! <laughs> I mean, kiss you too, not twat. So Amber, Amber had quite a dilemma. She didn't know which way to go. <laughs> And I put this the first time in a long time I've had a um, text message that had me hold my side laughing. Well, and I got to I got to say now that uh, now that this has come up, we're gonna you know we had rejected the what was the last text you received uh, question, but now it's going back in every interview we do <laughs> from now on because it it could turn out like this and that would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. I got to embarrass her by posting it on Facebook, so it was like twofold for me. Well, I'm sure she can. I'm sure she can handle it <laughs> because I, um, we know Amber too, and so I think she can take it. Um, okay, next question. Uh, what was the last lie you told, and was it "I love your podcast, fellas, and can't wait to be interviewed by you handsome guys"? <laughs> yeah, I thought about this one for a while, and I just I couldn't come up with anything good. I just I figure it's probably something I told my mother-in-law. <laughs> okay, and we and uh, we will send her a tweet uh, with a link to the podcast so that we can uh, get her to subscribe. <laughs> okay, next question: What is your strangest talent? Uh, I don't know that it's strange, but I'm oddly good at meeting people. Really? I, and and they and they like to tell me all of their business, you know, in the first five or ten minutes that we've met. In real life, then, not 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 in the cyber world. Oh, no, in the cyber world, too. Um, yeah, I'll just meet somebody online, and the next thing I know, I'm getting, like, 15 DMs in a row telling me about how their husband has prostate cancer or something. You know, I, wow. It happens to me almost every day. So if the book thing doesn't work out, you can go be an interrogator for uh, <laughs> some secret government agency, probably. Yeah, or I start a helpline. That's right. <laughs> um, do you have a collection of anything? I collect books, obviously, yeah. and movies. I have so many DVDs. I ought to just be like, they ought to be flowing me out in my house like I'm on, on a wave. I have so many DVDs. It's ridiculous. What do you think is Satan's last name? Huh? <laughs> uh, I'd rather not say, but I do know it. Oh. <laughs> uh, I had him in my class back when I was teaching. <laughs> okay. So, that's good. Um, no follow-up to that. I thought you were going to say he, he held the office of president at one point. 
No, that's too easy. <laughs> um, okay, what superpower would you most like to have? I think I'd like the invisibility. Just able to sneak in and out of places or just disappear. I, like I think we're going to start um, ranking the answers to that question so that one day after enough interviews we'll have we'll have a top three, top five kind of thing. Um, but I bet you invisibility is going to be in there because I've often thought about that. <laughs> the more famous they are. The way it's, right. <laughs> You're trying to hide from that internet fame. Yes. Um, what is your favorite food that someone else makes? Hmm. My husband makes a really awesome steak. It's just great. Like he's a better than any restaurant that you could go to. Oh. Is it on the grill? Oven? Oh, yeah. In the and I feel grill everything. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care what it is. You can get it on that grill. <laughs> what is what is your favorite food that you yourself make? I make a really great pot roast. Okay. See, now my answer to that question is <laughs> a phone call to a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> I don't cook either. I mean, I'm, I can pot roast is my signature meal, but my husband is the cook around here, or we'd all start. Yeah, Mostly because I just forget about everybody. I start writing. Yeah. Well, it kind of makes sense that uh, you know your your final literary piece will be a cookbook of of things that you can you can set up and then let them sit for six or eight hours while you write. <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah, it's going to be all crock pots and stews and chilies <laughs> and you know, and as long as your husband will grow a steak to go with it, I think no one will suffer. So that's good. Yeah. Um, do you have a favorite food that you can't get anymore? I have two of them. I swear, if I really like something, they'll quit making it. I don't <laughs> know why it is, but um, it sounds like you grew up in my mother's house. <laughs> <laughs> they used to have these things called um, these candy bars that are called Bar None. Mm -hmm. I don't remember yeah. those? They were delicious, and they never lost. They don't make them anymore. And oh boy, these chips! Wow. I loved those, and they don't make them anymore. Okay. I was just saying, we thought of that question before Twinkies went out of business, so. Right. <laughs> I don't really like Twinkies. I think they've already been bought by somebody else, like Little Debbie or something like that's already bought the recipe. Oh, scandalous. Yeah. Well, and I guess, I guess the problem with that question is, is that all the hostess line is going to start showing up in, in when we <laughs> ask this question in the future. So, for all our other six listeners, get creative. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, thanks for the interview portion of our show. Um, our listeners will be excited to hear about all the things that you're doing and all the very interesting awards that you've won. <laughs> uh, and um, so the next part is food porn. Mm -hmm. You sent us a picture of something that was very food porny. Uh <laughs> Is that a word now? It, it, it is now. It is now. <laughs> All those degrees in English have finally <laughs> come around to where we can create words of our very own. So, Forney, it is. Word of the day, children. <laughs> um, so, tell us about the cupcake in that picture. Ooh, that's a Gigi's cupcake. Ah. There is a specialty cupcake shop here in Tennessee. It's like in the middle Tennessee area. And um, that's all they do is just these delicious cupcakes. And they come in thousands of different flavors. But we discovered them, me and my husband. They do a thing here every year called the Taste of Stones River. And several different restaurants and little little 
specialty shops like Gigi's set up and you buy tickets and it's really cheap. You just go around and you just try, you get to try foods from all the different restaurants in town. Well, that's a great uh, idea. Oh, it's, oh, we leave there so, like, tickets still in hand and just stuffed because they've got some great stuff going on. But those cupcakes, that's where I um, found them at was there. And now I try to go there as often as I can. They're delicious. They've got so much icing on them. And I know a lot of people don't like the icing, but the icing on these cupcakes is delicious. Hmm. Yeah, we've got a um, we've got a couple of cupcake shops here that we have tried to elevate them to the level that you're talking about. And we go in and we find out that there's only two flavors available today, and the frosting's no good. And uh, <laughs> so finding a really good cupcake shop seems to be the essence of. Uh, of, of proper food portiness. I, I ran into one in, in uh, Seattle. Seattle has a cupcake shop called Cupcake Royale, which is exactly as you described. I mean, they're, they're top-notch. and In fact, their tagline is legalized prostitution. <laughs> I like so that. You know they're serious. But, uh, yeah, that's, it's kind of a schlep from here. Yeah. <laughs> like, all of your, uh, like all of your food porn, it, it all involves you being on the other side of the world getting really good food that all the rest of us can only think about or buy a plane ticket. Right. Uh huh. Exactly. And I'm so jealous because I heard on one of your cats, your prior podcast, that y'all have a Cancun. Yes. Which I love. Now, have you ever had the pineapple fajita at Cancun? I haven't, though. That I didn't try. Uh, yeah. The fajitas are good, but I never had one that was served on a pineapple. Okay. Let me just suggest that you stay away from that <laughs> one. Not, not only, not only is it. Odd and maybe not so good, but it has caused all kinds of historic discord here. Um, we've had we've had we had to bring in an arbiter to figure out uh, whether this restaurant was really any good, and, and I'm not sure that we're done with this issue. So yeah, we're still working on it. But I, I have to say, as far as food porn goes, it makes an interesting picture. Oh yeah, I don't know how titillating it is, but it's. <laughs> to see the pineapple sliced in half and there's meat in there, you're like, what is that? Yes, but it, the problem is, is that the pineapple fajita is it, it poisons the well, and it's like it's like grave robbing in in Egypt. You go and you <laughs> you steal something from the crypt of the pharaoh, and then your dog dies, and and and, and your water lines break, and there are moles in your backyard, and the pineapple fajita at Cancun is apparently the source of all evil. <laughs> so, well, I don't like pineapple all okay. that much. So. Well, then you're, you're, yeah. you're perfectly safe. <laughs> and, but I don't think feel that Cancun is really Mexican. I think they're more Tex-Mex. Well, yeah, I mean, you probably suffer from the same thing we do in the being, you know, in this part of the country where authentic Mexicans somewhat hard to find. Oh, no, where I live, there's it's all over the place. Oh, really? Yeah, we have, you know, I, when I think Mexican food, I think it's barely going to pass. It's barely passing, you know. It, you know. That's what I'm thinking, and that's what I want. You know, I want some some really runny white cheese sauce that I don't know what's in it. Probably some weed, because it's, <laughs> <you know? laughs> it's very addictive, but I don't want to know what's in it. Yeah, that's when I'm eating Mexican, that's what I want to go get. And they got a, you know, a margarita so strong, it'll take the paint off the wall. So you, I mean, sort of Mexican restaurant that would have like a, a cheek meat taco or or brains or things like that. <laughs> you just better off not knowing. Yeah. Of course, I live with the, the um with the theory that all of my meat comes from the Acme factory anyway. So. You know. <laughs> 
It's just generic meat coming off a conveyor belt. Yes, made by the same people who uh, who supply the coy- the coyote with his anti roadrunner devices. Right? Exactly. It's exactly. all one giant factory. It's, it's not any cow getting knocked in the head. It's the uh, the wily coyotes ordering it from the Acme factory. Well, we were wondering. So we don't we haven't t- traditionally talked about dessert much um, in food porn um, because. Uh, well, you know, we're, uh, we're men, and you know how men are. There's a, there's a quote from Hemingway that, you know, uh, any man who eats dessert didn't drink enough, that sort of thing. Right. And, so, <laughs> and, and of course, being, being writers and manly men, we always just ask, well, what would Hemingway do? And apparently what he would not do is eat dessert. And so we left it out of food porn until today. But, but we thought with you on board and, and talking about cupcakes, we, we'd ask you, um, and especially given your, your, uh, your romance background, shall we say, um, what, you know, what would you, if you were, if you were on a date, you know, what, what's a great dessert in your mind that, you know, you'd expect at a restaurant? Is it, you know, fondue or, you know, what, what's the spectrum there? Uh, I've been married a long time. I had never thought about dessert on a date. Well, a romantic uh, dinner with your husband then. Probably some sort of cheesecake. Ah, cheesecake. I don't know why, just when you say cheesecake, it sounds sexy. <laughs> Some kind of delicious cheesecake. And we were talking about the Cheesecake Factory just the other day because it's one of the few restaurants that we as men, when we go out, we we set aside a portion of our capacity for, for dessert because <laughs> you mean, you mean it's one in of, the name. You mean one of, <laughs> one of our four stomachs, right? <laughs> we reserve a chamber <laughs> for cheesecake. And, and it's, it's, it's like a subtle reminder. You know how when you're a kid, you always want to eat dessert first. Well, when you go to the Cheesecake Factory, which itself sounds very manly, you think, well, I have to save room because it's what they do here. It's not me asking ladies, right? I'm not a, I'm not some kind of pansy who wants a flowery iced dessert. It's in the name. We can't let them down. So. Exactly. One of the four stomachs today will be for dessert. Well, I've taken foreigners to the Cheesecake Factory, which is interesting too. Because, uh, you know, if they're not, if their English isn't all on par, they're like, so you're saying that cheese and cake and factory are all lies. There's no cake. Not made with cheese. And it's not really a factory, it's a restaurant. Go, yeah, just look past all that and come along. Well, now I'm going to have to retract my earlier wistfulness for gallivanting around the world with foreigners because they sound like a very literal bunch. Some of them are. And I, could, I might find that annoying. <laughs> But Hemingway, Hemingway gallivanted around the world with foreigners, so I guess we have to do it. Well, and I, and I have a friend. Well, you know, you know, our our, our FBI agent friend, oh, yeah. who lives, you know, a life of danger. So much so that anytime we go with him to the cheesecake factory, he orders a cheesecake first and eats it, and then proceeds with his meal. Wow. And and then of course after his meal he does have a cheesecake, but that's <laughs> only if he's lived to the end. He's got he's got an extra federally subsidized stomach then, I guess. Yes, he does. <laughs> okay, well, I think that wraps it up. Thanks again for being on our show. Good luck with the publishing contract because I will be watching to see how that goes. Sounds like one of the things that that you're going to be uh, nervous about uh, until it, until it's finally done. So I mean, I would be very interested to see that uh, that that goes well and the rest of the Adonis uh, book tour for the the rest of December. We'll put links on our website uh, to all of these things and a fuller explanation of the Mistress of the Dark Path and your podcast and several other things so that anybody who's interested can go and learn everything that there is to know about you. Yeah, thanks for being on. It's been a lot of fun. We hope we uh, hope we talk to you again. Thanks, guys.
And that brings us to the end of SajCast number 18, sponsored by Careful Planning Gone Wrong. Makers of Measure Twice, Cut Once, Then Cut Again, Then Sand the Edges. No parts left over, except these two screws. And talking really fast, because you forgot to pee before your podcast. So we'll see you next time, unless, of course, the world ends. (laughs) 